It is September 2014, and resident historian Doug Kent Crispin has been reading. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and this is another episode of the Kick-Ass Book Club. And it's my favorite book club I've ever been in because I get to choose all the books we read. No more selections about some 40-something divorcee wandering the world to find their happy place. It's just solid books about Oregon history. We interview the authors that write these books and present them with probing questions about why their books should be in the Oregon Argosy. And we'd like to encourage you to ask them, too. Just go on our Facebook, our Twitter, or email us your questions for your favorite authors, and we just might ask yours. When I get down on the pages, all I've missed, it will shoot to the top of the bestsellers list. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I have the honor of speaking with Mr. Peter Stark, who is the author of the book Astoria, John Jacob Astor, and Thomas Jefferson's Lost Pacific Empire. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. I'm delighted to be here, Doug. Now, I'm assuming that most of our listeners have actually read your book, but even if they haven't, I'm betting that they're familiar with the subject matter. But just in case someone is tuning in from Novosibirsk or something, can you give us the elevator speech? What is Astoria about? Well, Astoria is about the effort uh, sent by John Jacob Astor, New York fur baron, to establish the first American colony on America's west coast. This is just right after Lewis and Clark, five years after Lewis and Clark. And Astor saw it as a trans Pacific trans-global trade empire. Um, Thomas Jefferson was was backing it um, very enthusiastically and saw it as the beginnings of a democracy on the on the West Coast, which at that point was unclaimed territory. So the the short of it is that that it, it was America's first effort to really establish itself on the West Coast of of of, of the North American continent, and um, it took place right at. Astoria, Oregon. That was the 
the site of um, Astor's, uh, what he called his emporium, um, where he would be sending trade goods from New York, uh, trading them with the coastal Indian tribes for uh, sea otter furs and for furs from Postal up and down the Columbia Basin all through the interior, and sending those to China, where he would trade those furs um, at huge profits for teas and silks and and um, other Chinese luxury goods, take those back to London and New York and um, sell those for huge profits. So he'd have a, a, a fleet of ships circling around the world, um, constantly circling around the world, making huge profits at every stop. And we have to remember in, in those days, that this is 1810 when he launched his venture, the West Coast and, and the Northwest in particularly was extremely remote. It was not part of the United States. The, 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 uh, the Louisiana Purchase ended at the crest of the Rocky Mountains. So everything between the crest of the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Coast was essentially unclaimed territory. So essentially an area the size of Europe was, was lying out there um, unclaimed, except, of course, the Native American peoples had been there for, for forever. So uh, Jefferson uh, or Astor launched two uh, huge advance parties one by sea uh, around Cape Horn um, on, the sh on a ship called the Tonkin, which I think people who study Oregon history know it, when, if you grow up in Oregon, you've probably taught that in grade school. The ship Tonkin um, came to the Astoria in 1811, established Astoria as a colony. Um, and also uh, Astor sent another advance party um, overland under the leadership of a, of a young New Jersey businessman, Wilson Price Hunt, um, what was going to follow the Lewis and Clark route over the, up the Missouri River, over the Rocky Mountains, and down the Columbia. And both of those expeditions had um, some profound leadership problems. One was that Wilson Price Hunt um, was a you know, very nice guy, led by consensus, very serious-minded, um, responsible individual, but his great drawback was he'd never been in the wilderness before, and he was leading a huge party of 60 across the wilderness of the Western continent, where the, whereas the, uh, the Tonkin had leadership problems in its, with his captain, Captain Jonathan Thorne, who was a U.S. naval hero uh, who had made a name for himself in the War of 1812, not the War of 1812, in the uh, War Against the Barbary Pirates, and he uh, was known as being fearless in battle, had sailed straight into the face of enemy fire. Astor called him my, gun, my gunpowder fellow. Problem was Captain Thorne was very rigid. Um, you know, he was steeped in a kind of a military, military and Yankee tradition, didn't have much of a touch with, 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 a, with other um, in human relationships. And he got into all sorts of troubles with his passengers and his crew and ended up in really deep trouble when he uh, started trading with the Native Americans on Vancouver Island. So that's the, that's the short of it. Um, but there are many dimensions to the story and many, many, uh, many tales, um, many ramifications. Uh, that one of the things I point out that if it had, if this had succeeded, um, you know, the whole West Coast today might be a separate country called Astoria under the benign dictatorship of the Astor family. Or if it hadn't happened, um, 
West Coast might be might now be British Columbia. Um, but it did open the eyes of of Americans to the West Coast. It had a huge impact in doing that. So of course your book has been huge in our Oregon history community. It's very well written, very well researched, and of course, you know, the topic really resonates with us. I, for one, happen to have attended John Jacob Astor Elementary School in North Portland. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So this name is really well-known in our area. And, of course, Astor is really well-known in New York. But is your book mainly a regional interest piece, or is it written for a national market? Well, it's really written for a national market, and, and certainly it, it has a lot of regional appeal. The, the, the history of, of, of the Portland area and the story in all of Oregon the whole Northwest is it's it's very um, deeply intertwined in in the story, um, but it, it has re national appeal in the sense that this was really um, this effort on Astor's part and with Jefferson's backing was really what opened American eyes to the possibilities of the West Coast, and um, you know at that point the, the the United States was really kind of huddled on the eastern seaboard. It didn't extend much farther than the Appalachian Mountains. And people didn't really think about the West Coast. It was just impossibly remote. It was so distant. Um, it was 25,000 miles by sea to get there from Cape Horn, uh, you know, from uh, New York around Cape Horn. And, I, you know, I say that, that, that it was establishing an outpost there at Astoria was, it was so much more remote than, than the first colonists at Jamestown or at Plymouth, the first British colonists, English colonists. Um, the, uh, the story was so much more remote from New York than, than the first American colonists were from Europe um, by, by thousands upon thousands of miles. So it, it, it has its national significance in that it, it, it really helped determine the course of American empire on the continent, on the North American continent. And I try to I try to bring that out and that theme out in the, in the in the course of the book. It's you know I, I I focus a lot on the adventure story because it's a just a crazy adventure story, but I try to use the adventure story as a lens through which to see these larger themes of American history. You portray some really interesting characters in the book. Do you have a favorite? Well, I, I I like to think that I mean my my hero or heroine is is Marie Dorian. Yeah. That's exactly who I was going to ask about <laughs> another question. So let's let's go with that. Well, the, um, and I and I'm sure some of your listeners know know her uh, or know of her. Um, in fact, I've met some of her descendants when I've I've been giving readings out on the on the West Coast and and in various places in Oregon, and I've met several of Marie Dorian's um, descendants who have come to readings and introduced themselves. So Marie Dorian was a um, uh, an Iowa Indian woman who was uh, living in St. Louis or in that area at the time that the Wilson Price Hunt expedition, Astor's Overland Party, came through St. Louis. She was married to Pierre Dorian, Jr., who was a was part Sioux and he was an interpreter, and Hunt hired him to be the interpreter for the the Overland Party. Marie Dorian and Pierre wanted his wife Marie to go uh, on this expedition to the West Coast. Marie really didn't want to go. She had two very good reasons for not wanting to go: um, a toddler, a boy toddler four, and a boy toddler two. And in route, as it turned out, she was also pregnant. Um, 
so she was not really ready to make a trek to the West Coast. Um, but but she did go, and um, along the way, it's quite it's quite clear that she met Sacagawea along the way, um, somewhere on the Missouri River, or even in St. Louis. And of course, that's that's one of the things I address in the book is what you know what would the conversation have been between Sacagawea, who had just come back a few years earlier from the Lewis and Clark expedition, Reed Dorian, who was just heading out to the West Coast on this first big expedition to follow Lewis and Clark. Um, but Marie went through incredible hardship. Um, the Overland Party went through incredible hardship. Um, she managed to survive um, terrible mishaps with both her two toddlers, and um, she did give birth to a, a child at the at the base of the Blue Mountains in winter, and then. Um, the party was trying to climb over the Blue Mountains in the, in the dead of winter, and the, the baby died. Marie Dorian's baby died after a week at the, at the crest of the Blue Mountains of exposure. Um, but the Hunt and his men, um, the voyagers and the Scottish fur traders and the American hunters who were with Hunt, were all just blown away by how tough and game Marie Dorian was, that she walked most of the way rather than riding by horseback. She gave this birth to this child and just showed up in camp the next day as if nothing had happened with a baby in her arms, um, riding on horseback with her one of her toddlers strapped on the side of the horse. Um, she survived after they finally made it to the West Coast. She survived in a terrible massacre by hiding with her two boys in, in the snowy mountains for the winter, uh, living off of a horse that she had had with her and killed and smoked and making a shelter out of a horse hide. Um, with her two boys all winter long, and she ended up being the uh, one of the one of the first settlers in the in the Willamette Valley, and she was there. You know, this this was decades later. She was there when the first uh, wagon trains from the Oregon Trail arrived in the Willamette Valley with the with the, the first white settlers to to start farms there. So she had a very long life, and she saw the continent shift in amazing ways. And she was uh, just such a, uh, a smart and tough and stalwart character that um, compared to some of the other leaders who have their various flaws, she always stands out in my mind as the great heroine of the story. Now, the other leaders with their flaws, um, Captain Thorne comes across as a real ass. In, in the book. Um, he does come across as a real ass, yes. Is, is that a good read of his character? Well, he, you know, he, he certainly comes off that way, and there he certainly he certainly was acting that way um, in so many occasions. On the other hand, I try to have some sympathy for him, and, and I do, in the sense that, that he was, um, he was in command of a ship that had these, what I call a microcosm of North America at the time, um, on his, on aboard his ship. You know, he left New York with this. You know, this is the advanced ship. It's like the, the first ship that goes to Jamestown to start the Plymouth Colony or the or the Mayflower landing. Um, he had all the supplies to start a colony on the West Coast. This ship was, you know, very nice ship, just jammed to the rafters with all the supplies. He had a, a Yankee crew of about 23 um, guys who were loyal to him. But in addition, he had this big load of passengers um, 
Scottish fur traders from Montreal. They were the best in the business. And um, uh, about 17 French-Canadian voyageurs, these kind of happy-go-lucky, I call them sort of the wilderness hippies of their era. Um, and he had uh, on board eight Scottish clerks who were um, these sort of cheeky young, ed educated and cheeky young men. So the issue started the first night out of New York Harbor when Captain Thorne, who was steeped in this military discipline, gave the order for lights out at 8 o'clock. And in the military tradition, and the fur traders and the, the Scottish fur traders and the cheeky young clerks and the, you know, the happy-go-lucky French-Canadian voyageurs are hanging out on deck and smoking and talking, and they say, well, we're not ready for bed. And Captain Thorne says, yes, you are. It's lights out. And they say, no, we're not. And the Scottish fur traders say, well, Mr. Astor gave us shares in this enterprise, so we actually own part of this ship. And Thorne spins to them and says, the first person who disobeys my orders aboard my own ship, I'll blow his brains out. And um, that sets the tone for relations <laughs> from that point forward. Actually, the relations deteriorate from there. So he, what, but what, what he, he was faced with is this very um, uh, contrarian lot of passengers. And even in the best of times, in a ship at sea, a ship at sea, a sailing ship at sea, a square rigger, you know, it's a precarious creature. It's a very um, difficult, uh, delicate organism in a way, and especially in storms, and it requires a lot of discipline. So he had to rein in this kind of motley crew who had never been in this situation before, and um, and he and and they also um, took advantage of the situation. It took advantage of his being such a jerk by by um, playing tricks on him and, and, tr and trying to make him paranoid, which was not very difficult to do. So by the end of the voyage, I think he was, he, he, he was just at rope's end, that he was just kind of crazed with dealing with these people. And um, he didn't know any other way of life other than this kind of Yankee tradition and this, and this sort of military hierarchy. So when he was confronted with these other cultures, these French Canadians and the, and the Scottish fur traders, and then most importantly, when he first when he started trading with the Indians on Vancouver Island, he had no real flexibility to adapt to these other cultures. So he was he 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 was a, a jerk, but also um, kind of understandably so that he he was so far out of his element in these other cultures. So I do have some sympathy sympathy for that. Now, of course, this, this story was told differently, but it's been told before, and some have been harsh on Washington Irving's famous interpretation of this experiment, but you kind of let Irving off the hook. Why is that? What, what, why, I, I, sorry, why is what? Why have some been harsh on uh, Washington Irving's telling of this tale? And why were you more sympathetic with him or, or uh, more accepting of his interpretation? Um, well, that's a really good question um, and, and, and an important one. Washington Irving, um, his account of a story, which was published in 1836, came under you know, some fire uh, criticism some years later, um, by, especially by one historian in particular who had some kind of axe to grind against Washington Irving and was very dismissive of it. This was in the, in the mid to late 1800s. Um, 
studied his his Irving's account, realize how closely he followed events. And at one um, early fur trade historian, Hiram Chittenden, said, you know, Irving is not perfect, but Irving is the best that we've got. And what Irving had that we didn't, that we don't have, is Irving had doc, uh, access to a lot of the original documents and the letters and various accounts and and um, and had access to the actual some of the actual participants whom he interviewed. So he had way access to way more um, uh, material than than we have. Um, what he did do was that he, you know, he, I, I suppose you could, I don't know the word's been used before in his case, but, you know, he embellished um, scenes with his, you know, with his, his, uh, his brush strokes. Uh, you know, he was very good at portraying these kind of quaint, almost stereotypical characters in many situations. You know, he had, of course, he was the author of the, the most famous thing is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That's what everybody recognizes him for. But um, he wrote many other things. Um, and he was a, a, a great storyteller and a very articulate one. Um, so he he took certain liberties, you know, in adding, I think, color and drama. But the basic story is, as far as I can tell, in his, is accurate in his case in what he's what he's relayed. And there are details there that that you don't find in any of the other accounts. And and some of the details are very clear to me that it came directly from some of the participants he interviewed or his nephew Pierre interviewed. Um, his nephew Pierre was working for him as a researcher. Um, so I, generally, I tried not to go with Irving's account when, when I could help it, that I would, that there were many other, several great accounts of um, the journal accounts of part, from participants and memoirs from participants. So I'd compare those side by side to, to to really follow the story, to you know, to create, to craft the story I was telling. Um, and when none of those accounts would, uh, you know, when those accounts had a gap in them or a hole in them, I'd turn to Irving to see if he had, had anything and um, for a particular incident. And in some cases, he would. Um, the one I can remember and that really jumps to mind is when he described how the first canoes smashed into rocks in the Snake River. And he describes it in very close detail in a way that, that someone wouldn't, wouldn't just invent. It's a, it's a very accurate uh, portrayal of a whitewater accident. So that's, that's, you know, I turned to Irving for moments like that. You went to a lot of these locations in researching your book. Now, beyond visiting archives and museums, is there a connection that you make to the history by actually walking these lands, these physical spaces? I mean, do you get something more from that than just reviewing documents and the like? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, oh, so much so. And um, a lot has to do with, well, I've, uh, you know, I've been living in Montana for almost 30 years um, and in the northern Rockies and these landscapes through which the, the, the Overland Party passed. And so I know these landscapes very well, and, and I've I've had many of my own adventures and mishaps in these landscapes on rivers and mountains and snowy landscapes. So I, I you know, I, I I really understand what they went through. Um, not, of course, not to the degree they they went, they suffered. I mean, they suffered incredibly. But I know the landscapes. I've I've walked through a lot of the specific places. I 
know the weather at certain times of year and what what that weather is at at you know what it's like in in late October and you know in the high valleys of the Northern Rockies. I'm very familiar with that because I've been living in those valleys for 30 years. Um, so uh, that, that's part of what what I could bring to the story and um, part of the pleasure of writing it was was to to put myself in in those places. And, and or put them in those places to understand what they were going through and also understanding the decisions that they had to make in these very difficult wilderness uh, situations. For instance, when Wilson Price Hunt is taking this big party up the Missouri River on the, on the known Lewis and Clark route, and they start hearing more and more stories about the ferocity of the Blackfeet Indians at the headwaters of the Missouri, and Hunt has to make this really... Uh, significant, you know, profound choice whether to go up the known Lewis and Clark route into the ferocious Blackfeet territory or whether to turn off the known Lewis and Clark route and strike off into what's, you know, at least a thousand miles. I mean, he has no idea how far, but a long, 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 long way of unknown terrain. And it's a really difficult choice, and he finally decides to head for the unknown terrain, head out into the unknown terrain. Um, they ends up walking and riding horses as a big party for four months. They finally get on the far side of the, the Teton Mountains. Um, they get to a river. Uh, one of their, They have a trapper who's a guide who says, well, I think this flows to the Columbia and then to the Pacific. They build huge canoes, um, 15 huge canoes, they start paddling down this unknown river, thinking they'll, they'll get to the Pacific any day, um, into the Columbia. And um, first day, everything's going along really well, and they're flying along uh, down the river. The second day, they hit a few riffles. Third day, they hit rapids, swamp a few canoes. By the ninth day, they're going over major waterfalls. Canoes are smashing. Voyagers are drowning. And they ultimately get end up stuck in the bottom of the deepest canyon in North America, Hell's Canyon, with no food and with winter coming on. Um, and there's Marie Dorian and her two toddlers and eight months pregnant in this whole scene. But um, these are the choices that Hunt had to make, um, the, just the situations he faced. And then there he is in Hell's Canyon, and he has to choose whether to leave his dying men, dying starving men, um, beside the trail, you know, whether to stick with this handful of dying men beside the trail and lead um, or or whether to um, leave them there and um, head out of the canyon with the main group, leading the main group, another really difficult decision. So these were the the the, uh, the, the situations that really fascinated me, those, those, those difficult wilderness decisions. What was the aha moment of the book, or, or one of them? Maybe a source you found that hadn't been unearthed yet or a connection you made that had been previously overlooked. What was the a moment that kind of made you sit back and smile? Um, oh, that's a great question. There were so many of them, actually. But um, I, I think some of those moments that, for instance, those hunt moments when he had to really decide, what am I going to do here, these dilemmas he found himself in. So as I was reading his journals, um, he he wrote very his journals are very sparse, um, just a, you know often just a few lines per day, and yet when he said in one entry, I spent a very anxious night, 
you know that he was really wrestling with a decision. And then um, the joy, the pleasure is in doing this kind of research is to find the comparable entry um, in another in another account, um, in this case, a British botanist who was traveling with with the, the party, um, who talked about how Hunt was, you know, going was was stirring around, asking people, you know, their advice, what to do, you know, at that particular moment when Hunt was making these, these anxious decisions. That, that, that there was a description of him from 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 the other side, from outsiders or from other members of the party. So it's those those kinds of moments where um, really a joy to be able to really see the difficulties they were going through and really have have a feel for them. And how easy was it to shop this book? Were publishers receptive? I mean, is, is history a hard sell? Well, I, it can be. I think. I mean, a lot. So much is how it's how it's written, how it's presented. Um, you know what it, what it's about. I, that that in this case. Um, it was not a hard sell. Um, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of interest in, in selling uh, in this book um, when after I wrote the proposal. But I, I'd also written a very long, I wrote a 100-page proposal for this book, you know, which is a very, very long proposal. It was almost a, a synopsis of the whole book because it was such a such an amazing story. And that I think what, what was so striking to publishers is that one, they'd never heard of this before. I mean, you, you, you Oregonians have to remember that that you know the story or some, you know, or parts of it, but um, most other Americans have never heard of it. And I, I've been giving readings all over the, the country, and I routinely, at the beginning of a reading, I, I ask for a show of hands who's heard the story, and routinely, zero people raise their hands. Uh, unless they, in, you know, in Oregon it's different, but but in other states, um, almost no one's heard of it. Uh, whom I'm at, whom I ask. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons it was a, a um, you know, that there was so much interest in from the publishing world is because it's such an unknown story, and yet it's such a dramatic one, and it's also really historically significant um, for the the. The, the way the continent took shape geopolitically and the way our country took shape geopolitically. So it, it had those elements which made it, you know, I, I don't know if I'd say this, it was an easy sell, but um, it had those elements that were really appealing. And I think that's the thing about history is that, that um, you know, there's so many stories and there's so many different ways of looking at these stories. And, you know, some are well-known and some are less well-known, and there are aspects of some well-known stories that aren't well-known. And um, and there are ways to tell the stories that are compelling, and there are ways to tell the story that make it, you know, less compelling. So those are all factors that play into whether history is a, 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 a relatively easy sell or not. I don't think it's I, nothing's an easy sell, but, but uh, how, how how receptive publishers are to history. We talked to some folks, and we asked some others to post some questions on our uh, various social medias for you, and we got we got some very good response. People are so excited about this book. Oh, good! Uh, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's been it's it's been I've had a lot of good response. Uh, Terry wrote in, and she's soon to be an Astoria resident, actually, and she said, uh, "Tell him I love that book. Big fan." My question, if he could go back in time and give Astor three pieces of advice regarding his mission 
to build a fur trading empire out of Astoria, what would they be? Oh, wow. A great question. Um, I've never had that one before. Um, well, I, you know, I, I can think of, excuse me. Um, and you're kind of on the spot, so if you can just come up I'm, with I'm one, no, no, I, can, I, 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 I enjoy this. I know. I enjoy the challenge. Um, but uh, that, I, that I think one thing, one reason it it failed, one big reason it failed, or, or you know, it, it took root, you know, it took root for a couple of years, and then it ultimately failed. But one big reason it failed was because Astor didn't have a, a, a reliable communication network, and that there was this big lag in time from the time he could send a message to the time he received a message. It took two years before he even knew that the Tonkin had landed at the mouth of the Columbia. So if somehow Astor could have had a much faster communications network, he would have been way ahead. I don't know how he could have done that. Um, there, you know, you might have emphasized that more. Um, another uh, piece of advice for, for Astor, um, you know, just in the in terms of the human toll, when I when I look at this, I think that's one of the things that's so surprising about the story is the incredible human toll that this effort took, and that Astor, um, you know, he 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 comes across as as kind of oblivious to it, and I'm sure he was not oblivious to it, but that that he seems so focused on his bottom line that you don't get a sense of that this human toll took a big impact on him. And I think he'd be a, I don't, I don't know if he would have succeeded any better, but he would have been a far more sympathetic character if he had somehow reached out in some way to his men more than, than at least appears to us from this point, you know, 200 years later. And um, I think the third thing is, that, and Astor himself mentions this, uh, or I should say Washington Irving mentions this, um, that his leaders, Astor's leaders, and especially Wilson Price Hunt, the young New Jersey businessman, didn't understand how passionate Astor was about establishing this West Coast colony, that he was so behind it and he was willing to back it with everything he had, you know, ship after ship after ship. And so that, the, that his men and his leaders like Hunt and the West Coast colony thought, well, Astor's just, you know, we haven't heard from him in two years he's, or a year or whatever. He's just neglected us, forgotten us. You know, we should pull up stakes or we don't want to waste all his money. Or they, they didn't understand how, how committed he was to it. So that was another thing that Astor could have conveyed more strongly, I think, to his leaders. And then so those Jason, are, I, I don't know if I answered all three, <laughs> three points, but <laughs> there are the three that come to mind immediately. No, that was great. And then Jason asked, how the heck did John Day get not one but two rivers named for himself when he comes across mostly as a fuck-up in the book? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, John Day, he was actually a really good hunter and a really good guy. Um, he, that, that he, People really liked him, and he was an expert hunter that, you know, they, that he's – He's called you know a crack shot an expert hunter all through the various accounts. He, you know, I've I've wondered uh, that 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 the um, I don't know if he's a fuck up, but he's uh, he's I think kind of a sensitive guy is 
think that the psychological stress of being in this hostile situation where, where he's been, this very difficult situation where he's been, um, you know, first he's, he's starving in Hell's Canyon, then he's abandoned by his leadership, then he's poisons himself with death canvas roots. Um, I shouldn't laugh, um, but, you know, eats the wrong roots. Uh, almost dies there, you know, then he follows the tracks of the explorers who have gone ahead, loses them, you know, he's rescued by Indians, then he's, uh, he's, then he's later captured by Indians, stripped naked and sent naked out into the wilderness. Um, he's gone through these intre- incredible trials, and I think they, they really took a toll on him psychologically, and, you know, and they did. I mean, he clearly had PTSD, what we'd call PTSD, and book as I um, account, he tried to kill himself. He put two pistols to his head and pulled the triggers, but, but missed. Um, he clearly just took a deep psychological toll on him. And so I think he was, you know, really kind of a, a more sensitive guy, a nice guy. Um, and that he ended up, I think people liked him. And so I think that's one of the reasons rivers were named after him. And he, it's, it's kind of unclear what happened to him after, after he did, uh, you know, he was going back through this territory, going back up the Columbia, and he, he kind of, he sort of lost it and tried to kill himself. Um, he was sent back down to Astoria. Uh, it's, it's kind of unclear what happened to him at that point. Um, one account, I think Irving's account, says he died soon after. Other accounts say that he, he became a trapper for a number of years in that Columbia Basin area which I, I suspect is, is likely the case, um, and that he was one, when the Hudson's Bay Company finally moved in there, he, he was one of the trappers for them, I, I, I believe. Um, and he, I think, was, had, had traveled that Columbia Basin as much as anybody, as much as any white had at that point, and, um, and somewhere along the way had these rivers named after him whether because he'd endured so much there or because he just knew them better. But it is curious that he has two rivers named after him, a dam, a town, um, and there are probably other John Day things in Oregon. But And that's how, I, in fact, I got interested in this in this book. I, I was working on another book, uh, my previous book, called Last Empty Places, and profiling really uh, unpopulated areas of the country. And I was driving through eastern Oregon and happened to, you know, finally find a motel in a little town, you know, after one long, lonely drive. And uh, it turned out to be John Day, Oregon. And I said, well, how did this town get its name? And I started reading about the story of John Day, and it was just this incredible story, and yet it was only the tip of the iceberg of this whole Astoria um, expedition. And uh, that's how I got into the story, through, through John Day himself and the town of John Day. Well, uh, Peter, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you about your book. I really enjoyed reading it. And like I said, so many people have been so excited about this chat. And I know there are many here uh, that really enjoyed reading it as well. So hopefully uh, folks haven't read it. They'll pick up the book. I think the paperback's coming out in February, so that'll be available too. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much uh, for chatting with us today. Well, thanks so much, Doug. And, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and there's so much Oregon in, in this story that – it's always so so fun to talk to 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 people from Oregon about it, and uh, it connects so much with your with your state's history and your terrain. It's just always a delight to, to talk to you all. Great.
Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kank Crispin, or he'll strip you naked and send you off into the wilderness. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick-ass!
orhistory.com.